Hey friends, this is episode 12 of the series that TJ and I are doing going through the transitional book of doctrines and discipline for the Global Methodist Church. TJ, say good morning to everybody. Morning, everybody. How's TJ? Ready to go through another hour of the book of discipline. You make it sound boring, but you enjoy it whenever we do it. There, there are parts of it that are interesting and weird. Overall, it's it's very tedious. We well, and you have a mind for tedium. Uh, before we turn on the cameras today, we discovered that there are still multiple editions of this document on the internet. If you go to the Global Methodist website directly, globalmethodist.org, here I'll show it to you. That's the the main page right there. And you go to menu and our beliefs and governance, and then scroll down. You have a version right there. But what was it that you searched for? I, I just literally Googled Global Methodist Book of Discipline, and it uh, should be the first thing that comes up. And the first one that comes up is dated from 2022-04. And so that's what he was looking at last week, ostensibly. That's the first <laughs> well, thing that comes week. up. That's every, what I've been doing, yeah. That's what you've been doing every week. And then, um, so I, I'm sorry, everybody. We've We've probably given you... We've walked through stuff that's almost certainly not the updated version. So what, well, what's on even, the screen? Even stuff that's updated, um, it's probably going to change. Like this this new one's from last month. Yeah, this so. this one we're going to be looking at today, and I we can know this for sure because if you go up into the address bar and look at the address, has the date 2023-1130. So it's this is the most recent edition that we're looking at. Now, it's not going to have my underlines. I decided it's not helpful to look at the old changed versions. We need to look at the, the, the stuff that we're actually working with. So we are in paragraph 409 of the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. As always, we're going to go through for an hour. We're going to read the text. We're going to talk about some of the undergirding theology or ecclesiology of this stuff, and then we'll put it down and we'll come back next week. But we're already more than half the way through this document. I did learn um, this week, I was talking with Karen Nicholas, who's the chair of the Transitional Leadership Committee, TLC, which is the primary governing board of the whole denomination. They've established um, at this point five, I want to say, transitional commissions that are going to be presenting legislation to the conference next year, amendments to this. So, a lot of people have been interested in, okay, who's going to be, what's the process for suggesting edits? What's the process for suggesting new legislation? Um, I, I and several others thought it was going to be primarily done just by wacky people like me on the side, but apparently the GMC structure has provided working committees that are going to be presenting a lot of stuff. So there's five of those, but those are based on what? Geographical area? No, they're they're different topics. So like some dealing with like discipleship. I, it all started with me asking like, okay, the, the transitional book refers to a, a commission on higher education and ministry. We were covering that last week. I said, is that established? Is there anybody on it? Well, they haven't established it, but we saw last week there's different language around that that's less strict. Uh, but she sent me this other list of five different commissions that have been established and, and their membership. So, yeah, it had a total of like 50 names on it. So if I wanted to put forth 
some kind of change in the book of discipline, we you would reach out to these people? No, I don't think you have to go through them. So they, I think these people are going to do their own work on their own terms and submit it in their own name. And then you or I or anybody else, we can submit things in our own name in the right place at the right time. To who? These groups or? No, I, I think there's going to be a central coordinating entity that funnels all of the legislation and then publishes it similar to how they do it in the United Methodist Church. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. It'll go great. Hopefully. Yeah. Ideally. All right, let's look at the document, paragraph 409. This um, we, we cut off at the end last week with the historic questions asked of elders, <clears throat> and so now we're going to get into ordination as a, a deacon, and uh, I'll, I'll begin. Whenever you say elders, um, are you including deacons in this? Because 408 says um, this historic questions uh, for people, persons seeking ordination as deacon. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for correcting me. Yeah, in, in the GMC, everyone has to be a deacon first. Right. So traditionally, in the UMC, this is just for elders, I think, but now it's for anyone entering ordained ministry. Yeah, so the questions last week were specifically what you would be asked if you were um, just being interviewed, mm -hmm. like in the process, not once you've actually became a deacon. So that's what today's questions are once you're right on being yeah. ordained as a deacon. These are yeah. the questions they ask. And as I stipulated last week, those questions used to be in the United Methodist Church still are asked publicly in front of everybody at annual conference. The transitional book here said they will now be in private written answers uh, with whatever review. I think it, I think it's still called the Board of Ordained Ministry. I guess we'll see. All right. Ordination as a deacon. Within the Global Methodist Church, certified candidates must be ordained as deacons and, after ordination as deacons, may be ordained as elders. So, point one is the ordination questions. Upon completion of the education requirements of paragraph 406.2b and 407.3a, and passing a deacon's level knowledge examination in doctrine, history, discipline, and Bible, a candidate for ordination as deacon shall be interviewed by the annual conference board of ministry or equivalent. So it's not a board of ordained ministry, it's just board of ministry. During such interview, the candidate shall be asked the following questions. Question A, what is your personal experience of God? B, what is your understanding of evil? C, what is your understanding of grace? D, how do you understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers and in the church? E. What is your understanding of the kingdom of God? F. What significance do you believe that the resurrection holds? G. What is your understanding of the nature and authority of Scripture? H. What is your understanding of the nature and mission of the church? I. What gifts and graces do you bring to the work of ministry? J. What is the meaning of ordination? K. What is the role and significance of the sacraments? L. 
Have you studied our form of church discipline and polity, and will you support and maintain it? And finally, M. For the sake of the church's witness, are you willing to dedicate yourself to the highest ideals of Christian life, the Christian life, exercising self-control in your personal habits, integrity in all of your relationships, and if married, fidelity in your covenant with your spouse, or if single, chastity in your personal conduct? So some clear overlap with the historic questions above, but also some unique material. What what initial reflections do you have? Um, this whole section I really have no strong feelings about. Like, yeah, they're okay. They're good questions. Um, I think, the, I guess the one that jumped out at me the most um, was G, what is your understanding of, nature and authority, of the nature and authority of Scripture? So that, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if that's a question for the UMC that's asked, but there's a lot of variations in answer, I feel like, in the UMC to that particular question. Yeah. Um, so. It's a wise thing to do. I mean, they cover all the basic areas of theology, except for soteriology, I think. I don't think it talks about the—they talk about resurrection and the kingdom of God, but it would be cool if they had a question of just what does it mean to you to say that someone is saved or mm-hmm. that we are saving people. So, but they have ecclesiology, they have a doctrine of the Spirit, they have um, doctrine of God, of evil, of grace, um, pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, missiology, um, I'm kind of hopping all around, theology of ordination. See, the problem here, though, is I don't know that we have, I mean, we have doctrinal standards, but I don't know that they're explicit about all of these in equal measure. So one of the problems with the United Methodist structure was that boards of ordained ministry got pretty, I mean, in some ways they were way too broad and in other ways they were too exact, but this seems to open the same door to some annual conferences having um, very broad answers that they accept and then others having only very narrow things that they will. I just wonder how... Uh, if this is just basically an exercise of can this person articulate a coherent theology, that's great. But if it's we need to make sure that they fall between certain parameters, we haven't yet set the parameters in the GMC in all the ways that I think would be helpful for this. What is, what ways do you think would be helpful? Like narrowing them down? Yeah, I mean, like it would be really great if as a – Denominate well, and they probably do in the catechism. If we could adopt the catechism as an official doctrinal resource, but just to have something saying something like, uh, the kingdom of God has already been established by Christ Jesus when he was here on earth, and uh, but it is not known in its fullness yet and will be known in its fullness at Christ's second return. Something establishing the already and not yet, uh, not yet nature of the, the kingdom of God, a succinct statement where this is the standard. If you don't really believe it, you're not really a Methodist. We haven't done a lot of that. Or, you know, with Scripture, to to set the lines of, okay, it's it's infallible, and these are the ways that it's inerrant, and we're just not going to accept people who are too loosey-goosey in these particular ways. We we haven't spelled that out yet. So if, if these are going to be established—so if the purpose of these questions is we're going to make sure everybody at least believes this about all these areas, that's one thing. But if it's, we're just going to make sure that these people can actually talk about their faith and explicate a coherent faith, that's another thing. And that's worthy. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, no pushback. Uh, well, let's finish that paragraph. In evaluating candidates who attend an educational institution not on the Global Methodist Church's recommended list, the annual conference board of ministry will evaluate whether the candidate's courses and preparation meets the standards of the Global Methodist Church. So, yeah, there used to be a, a denominational commission that was supposed to do that, but now it's on the annual conference board of, board of ministry. They're going to decide if your credentials are good enough. Okay, so it's up to each annual conference rather yeah. than a random board on the general conference. Like random wouldn't random, be the right yeah. word, but like a... Well, a general conference board that does all that for everybody. Yeah. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Like, you could come down to, like, the... Uh, a jurisdictional thing where there's just jurisdictions that decide that well they're going to do something different. Yeah. So well, I, I think I think what we are looking at is a scenario, and I think we already saw this when we were talking about transferring a local church transferring from one annual conference to another. Why would we even have that provision? It would only be if annual conferences can have some real variety between them, such that one might not want to belong to one but would want to belong to another one. So I think we might be looking at a realistic scenario where. Some annual conferences really have different theological flavors um, that are guaranteed by boards of ministry. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know what you would do to stop that. I mean, there's problems either either direction you go, so it's like, sure, whatever. The annual conference board of ministry shall evaluate whether the candidate evidences a sufficient foundation in and commitment to the doctrine, ethical principles, and discipline of the Global Methodist Church. All right, that was all point one. Here's point two. The annual conference board of ministry or equivalent will interview the candidate for readiness for ordination as a deacon. After being interviewed and recommended by the annual conference board of ministry by a two-thirds vote, and approved by a two-thirds vote of the clergy of the annual conference and executive session and by the bishop, a certified candidate shall become a full member of the annual conference and be ordained as deacon by the bishop through the laying on of hands. The only thing I want to say to that is I, I really think two-thirds is insufficient. I think it should be like 90%. Because if, if you imagine people squeaking through, but 35% of the people, fully a third, did not like them. Did not want them. Uh, that's that's an issue. Yeah, um, and I guess it would be uh, okay. They're going to do that individually. It wouldn't be just a big get up in front of the annual conference and vote on them all at one one time like they do in the UMC. This is so from conference to conference in the United Methodist Church. Their procedure is different, and so. So far, we haven't seen a procedure at annual conference adopted here either, whether they do it as a big group or as individuals. I don't think that's been spelled out explicitly okay. anywhere. Okay. Okay. Point three. Deacons are clergy members in full connection of the annual conference with full voice and vote on all matters except the ordination and conference relation of elders. Deacons are not serving... Deacons not serving under appointment shall be classified as inactive and shall have no voting rights in the annual conference except as provided for in paragraph 418. That's interesting. So if you're not, if you're a deacon and you're not serving somewhere, you don't get a vote unless 418, I don't remember what 418 was because it's actually in this one. It was the one I was looking at earlier. I didn't have it. Oh, it, it, it does um, have 418? Senior status. Okay. 
Yeah, there it is. All right, we may get to that today. I kind of doubt we will. Um, but what was the other thing in there? Um, Let's see. We had... Um, so, interesting parallel um, here. You ever heard of Starship Troopers? Yeah, I've seen Starship Troopers. Sure. Have you read the novel? I've not read it, no. It's, I assume it's different from the book. It's super... Or different from the movie. It's super different. It's it's um, it's not just a sci-fi novel, but it's it's political theory. Sure. And it has this future society that's essentially fascist, but... Um, it, it's it's technically a democracy. The only people who can vote are people who actively serve in the military. Yeah, and so the notion here would be similar: is you should only be able to determine the course of your annual conference if you are actively serving it. Right, and then in which case you, if you are serving, you don't get a vote for who becomes an elder. Right, because you're not an elder. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so only it's elders like, can choose elders. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's see. We are still on 409. We're now at point four. Deacons may be appointed to serve as part of a ministry team in a local church, including as a pastor or another ministry setting by the bishop, or they may secure their own position with the approval and appointment of the bishop. Deacons may continue to serve as a deacon indefinitely under appointment by the bishop and are encouraged to continue their education in regard to whatever ministry specialty they are called to pursue. So once again, deacons do what they want to do, serve where they want to serve. Don't tell them what to do unless you're the bishop. Your job as bishop is really just to bless the deacons and what they want to do. All right, um, point five. I am being a little snarky. Deacons shall meet minimum educational requirements at the time of ordination as determined by the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. Following ordination, deacons must fulfill the additional educational requirements established for deacons in 407.3b within seven years. So we talked about that last week. Deacons who do not complete all educational requirements within the allotted time shall be classified as inactive until such educational requirements are completed. Point six, deacons considering a call to ordination as elder or in whom the gifts and graces for the ministry of elder are recognized by a bishop or presiding elder may be appointed to the office of pastor in a local church. If such an appointment is more than a temporary assignment, a deacon who accepts such an appointment must declare candidacy for ordination as an elder and begin the process towards such ordination following the completion of all educational requirements as a deacon. So that one didn't have a time frame on it, wasn't it? Didn't we read in one point that it's like if it's more than a year, or was that for somebody other than deacons? That was for like a. I think it was supply. for other. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So it just says if it's more than temporary. I guess that could be any num any amount of time. Yeah, it seems intentionally vague. Yeah, which I guess is fine. Yeah, be vague if you want to. Don't constrain the deacons. Deacons do what they want. All right. Um, why don't you do paragraph 410? All right, 410, ordination as an elder. One, deacons who desire to be ordained as an elder shall declare their candidacy for such ordination to the annual conference board of ministry or equivalent. They shall be eligible for ordination as elder once they, A, provide, prove themselves faithful, mature, and effective over a period of period of a minimum of two years service as a deacon. So you can't be an elder unless you're a deacon for at least two years. Yeah. 
Um, B, complete the educational requirements for ordination as an elder specified in paragraph 407.4A. C, pass an advanced level examination in doctrine, history, discipline, and Bible. Thing I have an issue with there, no Oxford comma. What are we, heathens? Yeah, that's... uh, Barbaric. Um, <laughs> That's <a> better. <laughs> All right, go on. I shouldn't have distracted. D, be interviewed and recommended by a two-thirds vote of the annual conference board of ministry or equivalent for ordination as an elder. In evaluating candidates who attend an educational institution not on the Global Methodist Church's recommendation list, recommended list, the annual conference board of ministry will evaluate whether the candidates' courses and preparation meet the standards for the Global Methodist Church. The annual conference board of ministry shall evaluate whether the candidate evidences a sufficient foundation in and commitment to the doctrine, ethical principles, and discipline of the Global Methodist Church, and E., be approved by two-thirds vote of by the elders of the annual conference in executive session and be approved by the bishop. Something that's occurring to me, so having been in the United Methodist Church, one of the frustrations I had was that a lot of people sitting on the Board of Ordained Ministry of my annual conference were not... Well, the pastors on there hadn't been pastorally effective, a lot of them. They, you know, cratered every church they ever served. Not all of them, just some of them. But also there were a lot of lay people on there, didn't really know much theologically. They were just kind of feeling things out. This was, what was this? This is the Board of Ordained Ministry. This is the annual conference board that does this work. UMC or GMC? UMC. okay. So in GMC, I haven't had to appear before anybody because they've been building this bridge as we've been walking. But the frustration I'm conveying here is you have this committee that is this gatekeeper but who controls the who who sets the standard for the gatekeepers? You know, it seems like something. I mean, if you have uh, there's a conference nominations committee, if they have really great standards for selecting laity and clergy that have a great doctrinal awareness and a practical theological track record, great. But I haven't seen any language about that thus far. And what usually happens with committees is we've got this many slots we need to fill. Who's willing? Mm-hmm. And that's not really. I mean, these people hold a lot of influence over the future theological identity of the denomination. It seems like a potential Achilles heel. Yeah, how do you uh, evaluate somebody's answers when you're not even able to articulate an answer yourself? Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. I'm sure sure every annual conference will do. Go ahead and figure out who's on your conference's board of ministry. Scrutinize the heck out of them. Well, you know, <laughs> charitably assess charitably whether or not these are, are folks that you think really can do a good job of of guarding manning manning the the walls. So, um, yeah, I, we we don't want to have a, a paranoid atmosphere, a, a cynical, mistrusting atmosphere. But it, it is important to know our weaknesses and be prepared to to buttress those in the event that they're they're not doing what they're supposed to. All right, why don't you uh, keep going? All right, we're on two. Yes, sir. The additional educational requirements specified in paragraph 407.4b must be completed within seven years of ordination as an elder. Persons who do not complete such requirements in a timely manner shall be ineligible thereafter to serve in the office of pastor of a local church, but may continue to serve in other capacities as a deacon. Three, elders 
are clergy members in full connection of the annual conference with full voice and vote on all matters. An elder not serving under appointment shall be classified as inactive and shall not have voting rights in the annual conference, except as provided for in paragraph 418. Elders may be appointed by the bishop as a presiding elder or district superintendent, to local ministry as pastor in charge, to the staff of a local church as a chaplain, as an evangelist, or to other ministry settings. Elders are eligible to be elected to the office of bishop. So only elders can be bishops. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking for anything else that's remarkable about this, but in a lot of ways it's, you know, same, very similar stuff to Deacon. The point two did have a timeline for completing the educational requirements. Seven years. Just like a deacon. Yeah. So it's, well, yeah, we, we hit on that last week. It was, that's pretty generous. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Anything else before we move on? I, yeah, no, there's nothing on that one that jumped out at me. We're going at a good clip. This is paragraph 411, the ministerial training fund. A fund shall be maintained for ministerial education by the Transitional Leadership Council. So remember, that's the board at the very top. Once certified, a candidate may request a loan to assist with educational requirements. A service commitment of five years' duration after ordination is required of any clergy who receives such assistance. I'm going to read that again because I zoned out. A service commitment of five years' duration after ordination is required of any clergy who receives such assistance, with 20% of the loan amount forgiven for each year of ministry within the global Methodist Church. Hey, that's really interesting, actually. They don't have anything like that in the UMC? They have a uh, general board of higher education ministry does have grants that they give out largely to ethnic and sexual minorities. Of course but, they do. Um, I don't think that they have anything that's commensurate with 20% of the debt each year. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, so uh, you are required to, I guess you're not required because if it, um, it's a commitment. Yeah. So you're committed to serve at a, G, at a GMC church for five years each year. 20% of your loan is paid off that you've taken out. So say you take out. That's an awesome deal. It's pretty good, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't make any commitments as to every candidate is going to be given this. It just says the fund shall be established, and this is the intention of that fund. Yeah, right? I, I guess they haven't like stipulated all the um, barriers and and whatnot. That's probably just a we want to do this is aspirational in nature because it just says yeah, it just says it'll be maintained. That's uh, an awesome aspiration, though. What would be really great is if they're able to establish like a perpetual endowment fund that just grows every year and every year they're able to apply more and more to uh, the education. Yeah. Clergy. If it's when you got into something, when you get into something that's, that's not maintainable, if it's, if it's able to be self-sustained, that would be great. Yeah. Because I mean, but that goes college against- funds are just going to college uh, costs are just going to keep going up. Yeah. So maybe. they would have to like, I, I I would think ideally that would be from a list of, okay, here's our list of colleges. We've got an agreement with these colleges yeah. that we'll send you students if you give us like a discount or something. Like, sure. That would be ideal. Yeah, this is that's a big picture. I'm I'm I mean, I love this idea 
but it kind of goes against the culture of the GMC that's been established from the beginning of we're not going to have a big bureaucracy. We're not going to have a bunch of money sitting around. And Yeah, that's... I imagine that's going to happen over time anyways. <laughs> like <they say laughs> that's what now. everybody's saying is yeah. you're dealing with irrefutable forces here. It's just going to happen. Yeah. Maybe. I, I like this. Yeah, that's that's good. I think that's – I mean, because we were talking about college debt last night. Right, we were, yeah. Yeah, and it was just crazy it's how, it's, how expensive it is for a bunch of unnecessary – well, even, I don't know. Did, did it say you require a doctorate to be an elder? No. no okay, master's. Bas- bachelor's. Or, or it is a master's? Well, I don't. I don't know that it's actually said that. I don't what, think it specifically said like what level. It said okay, you've got to have these specific classes. Yeah. Um. So that could be bachelor's. I mean, it, my I guess my worry is whenever you start getting into masters and doctorates, like you're getting real expensive there. Yeah. yeah that's a that's a lot of schooling that uh, you might see it as necessary. I don't really see it as necessary. Bachelors, I, even even bachelors is iffy to me like as long as you can like articulate it and you know what you're talking about and you can prove that fine yeah well so if if high school standards were what they used to be and anyone graduating had to be able to write coherent thoughts in essay form that would be great but the reality is that high schools don't and the bachelors now is the all but usually a guarantee that people can formulate their ideas Uh, i've got a lower view of college than you do i guess Mine was useless. A lot of the classes were useless. They were just money pits is all they were. Yeah. I mean, I've got a pretty low view, but... Mm. Like, I, I just don't like the requirement of you have to go to college generally to do this. Yeah. If you can prove that you're intelligent enough and you know the stuff and you didn't take a college, you don't have a college degree, fine. Yeah. I'm cool with that. Yeah. But to assume that you're competent just because you can write some papers and pass some classes, I think is ridiculous. Cause there are a lot of people that I know that go to college that are just, what'd you waste the time for? Like you got a piece of paper, but you didn't learn anything. We haven't wasted much time on this episode, so I'm going to waste some. <laughs> I've had a theory on this, right? How is it that, because for a long time we've had this awareness that when people do higher education, it, it warps them. And change, you know, the, a great way for people to lose faith is to go get a master's of divinity. You know, that's that's what happened in the United Methodist Church all the time. If you didn't see my interview with Matt O'Reilly, I, well, actually, I'm putting that out tomorrow, but we talk about this some. But people have noticed that the higher degree of education you get, the more detached you are from real life. So my theory is that for higher education, you have to engage your prefrontal cortex a whole lot, which deals with scenarios, imaginations, constructs, and it's not tethered to real life very much. And so that's what's wrong with uh, people who go to college is they spend too much time in the ether, not not rooted to real life, and that's why there's a continual frustration between the educated classes and the generally uneducated. The generally uneducated understand cause and effect. This is what real life, you know, sober up, this is real life. And the the laptop class, the elites, the white collar folks don't have to stuck in that imagination land. But it's not that they're stupid; it's that they're actually um, unmoored in their intelligence. And so, uh, you, you, I think you need both. And I don't think you need it in two separate people. I think that the expectation of clergy is that they understand the world of ideas and the stuff on the ground. Otherwise, they really shouldn't be a pastor. You're nicer than I am about it. Yeah. 
Okay. That's what everybody <laughs> that's says about exp- me. That Jeffrey Rickman, he's a nice uh, guy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, that's a good explanation. Paragraph 412 on Supply Pastor. Upon recommendation of the Board of Ministry and affirmation by the clergy session of the annual conference, a clergy may appoint a person to serve as a supply pastor under the immediate supervision of an elder who can provide mentoring to the supply pastor and preside at the sacramental ministry of the congregation. That just means serve communion and baptize people. Supply pastors are clergy members of the annual conference with full voice but not vote on all matters. So it's kind of like a local licensed pastor in the UMC. Supply pastors not serving under appointment shall be classified as inactive and shall not have voice in the annual conference. A supply pastor must be a candidate for ordained ministry and must be ordained as a deacon within three years of being appointed to serve as a supply pastor. I'm going to look at that. Supply pastor must be a candidate for order. They have to become a candidate to be a, a supply pastor, and they must be ordained as a deacon within three years. Okay. Persons serving as pastors in a predecessor denomination who did not yet qualify for ordination as deacon shall have three years from the time of their transfer into the GMC to be ordained while continuing to serve as a supply pastor. So they move you along pretty quick. If this is not, they don't want to create a whole class of um, local licensed pastors like in the United Methodist Church. Right. They want people to either be moving up or moving out of yeah, that so role. So you got what three years to. Be ordained as a, let's say, yeah, as, as deacon. Yeah. So. Yeah. You're put Which on that conveyor fine. belt, step up or step out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anything else before we go on? Man, you were you were a local licensed pastor for a while. You, you feel good about that? <laughs> you you like that they're not continuing that thing? Oh, I don't know. It, uh, no, I mean, I guess I have a, right now, and I can change on this, I have a low theology of ordination. I just don't think it corresponds with anything real. It, it seems to me that we just make up all these rules about um, arbitrary standards that we can click off a box and say we did our due diligence to make sure that we had responsible leadership. Um, so I, I kind of share in the same frustration you have where it's just like, I don't care what boxes they tick, are they going to be able to do the job well or not? Right. And it, it seems to me that um, a lot of these structures are created so that we don't have to do that scrutinizing yeah, of people. It's just like you, you assume because they're an elder, they are automatically know all this and they can do it and all that stuff. Yeah. And that might, that very well could be the case, um, but there's, that doesn't mean that they are capable of doing well, it, I guess. And some of it is just like, it's things you know, but a lot of it, it's just like interpersonal. You know, there's so many pastors that they've learned the right stuff, but they're just weird. They don't have the right way of interacting with people to like lead them to Christ. They're they're so sure, off-putting yeah. in their personal nature that, but you know, hey, they checked the boxes and they said the right answers in writing. So, you know, I, I just think, I think so much of pastoral work is interpersonal. Like, can this person have a conversation? I'm thinking of all of the weird pastors we've like in the UMC that we've looked at. Just like, yeah, I got a weirdo. Yeah. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Theology warps people sometimes. So, I mean, I would like to think theology has really rounded me out. Pastoral ministry, I mean, and I'm not done yet. I'm not, I have not achieved perfection. But there are so many people in ministry that's just like, dude, I don't care what book smarts you've got. You should not be leading people. But a lot of people have found their way into pastoral ministry because. They've got a call. Of, huh? But they've got a call. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, this directly reflects yeah. on the call theology, and but also on this very academic heavy, credential heavy um, framework that that was created here. So, um, yeah, I guess well, the, I mean, if you don't have that, it's just like a free for all almost. Yeah. So, if 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 we don't have the call system and this this uh, academic heavy, what do we have in its place? Right. There are other tribes, other denominations that don't have that. What do they look like? And are is the quality of their clergy any better? Probably not. Well, yeah, no, I can think of like a bunch of like independent churches that just got that crazy personality that's just way out there. Yeah. So my this answer is the though, system we've got. I, I I have like that one panacea answer. My answer is compulsory involvement in a Christian uh, uh, a Wesleyan class for a prolonged period of time. I just think that is what rounds people out. That's what makes them sink or swim in faith. But if you don't have a regular weekly committed covenant group that's holding you accountable, I'm just really pessimistic about your ability to model Christ, to lead other people to Christ, to be a normal, functional pastor. Yeah, you, you kind of become less socially awkward when you're forced to be social. Yeah. So. Yeah, watching over one another in love, yeah. That's what we're doing for you, TJ. Making you be <laughs> well, social. <laughs> I, I feel like I I can I'm, I'm I'm decent socially. No, you are. You are okay. Uh, for for anyone who's watched this and who loves TJ and cares about him, he's actually a fantastic interrogator in our class class meetings. Uh, whenever I leave him in charge, he asks very probing questions and gets people to talk in ways that I can't. He's very <laughs> gifted. Nothing to say. Okay. Uh, no. Yeah. No. No. I appreciate that. Paragraph four thirteen. Why don't you take it? Chaplaincy and other endorsements. The Transitional Leadership Council shall appoint a provisional ecclesiastical endorsing board that shall support, that shall report to the TLC to fulfill the following ministry objectives and requirements. One, evaluate applications and recommend persons to, yeah, to specialized ministries that require a denominational endorsement. Evaluate applicants. So like, it, yeah, this is around chaplaincy. So a chaplain officially serves in a body that's not a, a global Methodist sure. church. Like a uh, uh, hospital or sure. something. So this is the board that's going to review what's the nature of this hospital. Can we gladly send one of our ordained clergy to serve in this capacity? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm not as familiar with chaplaincies. Um, number two, provide professional and pastoral support and accountability by those appointed to serve in chaplaincy slash institutional ministry settings. Three, interpret and advocate for those serving such appointments to bishops, annual conferences, and local congregations. Four, work to identify quality continuing educational opportunities for those appointed to endorsed ministries. And five, Liaisons with other faith groups, chaplaincy organizations, colleges, theological seminaries, and conferences to share the vision and opportunities for boundary ministries in institutional and secular settings. In its discretion, the, transi the Transitional Leadership Council may select a director of endorsing ministries to oversee ongoing completion of the objectives listed above. The director shall work with the transitional transitional leadership council to establish necessary funding, implement policies, and logistical support. The director shall ultimately 
shall be a, shall be ultimately accountable to the Transitional Leadership Council and shall work in close collaboration with the Ecclesiastical Endorsing Board and all other matters relevant to the effective discharge of responsibilities. So the main takeaway I'm getting from this is as a deacon, you can do pretty much anything you want. As an elder, you can do lots of things. And then also as a chaplain, it's kind of the Wild West, but there is a board or at least a director that's responsible for overseeing what you're doing in their name, pretty much. Is that different from the UMC at all? I don't know. I've never cared about chaplaincy. I I, I know it's a thing. I know there are wonderful, lovely people that are chaplains. <laughs> I just don't care about it. I don't know. I Here's my, I mean, so the primary context that I have encountered chaplaincy is at undergraduate and graduate schools. There will often be a chapel with a, a chaplain at the top. And the I've I've largely I mean I've largely appreciated and liked such people, but I noticed that chapels and chaplains often have the effect of drawing people away who would otherwise be engaged in the local church. They give them that that churchy engagement. They provide worship experiences and pastoral mm-hmm. counseling, but it's not a formal worship. Uh, covenant body. So I, I worry that with good intentions, chaplaincy often... I mean, the intention is that they serve as a bridge into a local church, but I think so often they actually serve as um, uh, punching that church button without actually getting people into church. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Like, if there's a, a college church chaplain, like, the students are going to be more likely to go to them than to regular church. Like what if there's a church right across the street? Why what's the, what's even the point of having yeah, a chaplain? It's, it's quite rare. It does happen, but it's quite rare. Like even, even at my brother went to another seminary where they have a very strong chapel and chaplaincy. And it's quite rare that, I mean, this is a theological education. There are a lot of people pursuing theological education that will forsake the local church to be engaged in the local chapel and chaplaincy not be engaged in daily discipleship with people of other walks of life, not be tithing, not be uh, uh, practicing the one another's, but they try and make the campus chapel a pseudo-church where they conditionally do this on a temporary basis. And it's just not... I don't think that's really the way that the faith was designed to be lived out together. I mean, at that point, I'd just put a church there. Yeah. Like, I guess if, if it's functioning the way that a local church would... Yeah. Fine. I mean, because what's the difference between doing that and then just going across the street to a brick and mortar? Well, so, yeah, it's it's a lot of times it's just, you know, we don't have to tithe. We don't have to show up and do these committee things. We can just show up and have these powerful worship experiences and do fun mission trips and and stuff like that. It's this kind of pseudo church. But I, I don't know if you remember, I don't think you were actually, um, we went over to Bartlesville and I interviewed... Um, actually, it wasn't on camera, but there's the Lighthouse Christian Center that is a homeless center for people. Yeah, and they had a new guy coming on board that I talked to in the hallway. He was not Errol Hada, but he was talking about how excited he is to start baptizing people who come in there. But I'm of the mind that nobody should be baptizing people but the church. But they're not a church. They're a Christian organization that does some churchy things, 
but when they baptize somebody, they're not baptizing them into a church. They're just baptizing them into to Christ, I guess, and then setting them loose, which I don't think is the biblical design for. And I know about the Ethiopian eunuch, okay? I just think that's an extreme circumstance. So anyway, my, my larger concern is just allowing for ministry settings that are not under the umbrella of a church. I think the church is Christ's only organization for well, the salvation the, of they're souls. They're under the umbrella of a board of chaplaincy. Yeah, and I don't think a denomination is—I'm talking about local church. I, I think know. unless you are under a local church, you are dancing with danger. I was so. being a little, a little uh, facetious. Oh, you were? Yes. Okay. <laughs> sorry, it was so dry I didn't yeah. pick it up. Anyway, if I've offended you, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I know and love a lot of chaplains that are very passionate about their work. I've just not seen the error of my ways yet. And those, if you if you want to write in the comments why I'm wrong, just answer the concerns that I have. Do me a favor. I, I'm just not that familiar with chaplaincy enough to really have a good opinion about it, I guess. I don't think it, this next section is on evangelists. I don't think United Methodist Church had something like this. I could be wrong. Y'all correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think, when I was looking at this earlier, I don't think this was one of the paragraphs. In the older version? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Let's see what it says. The Transitional Leadership Council shall appoint a provisional endorsing board to encourage the work of evangelists in the GMC that shall report to the TLC to fulfill the following ministry objectives and requirements. One, Evaluate applications and recommend persons to the ministry and office of evangelist. Two, provide professional and pastoral support and accountability by those appointed to serve in evangelistic ministry settings. Three, interpret and advocate for those serving such appointments to bishops, annual conferences, and local congregations. Four, work to identify quality continuing education opportunities for those appointed as evangelists. And five, liaison with other faith groups, evangelistic organizations, colleges, theological seminaries, and conferences to share the vision and opportunities for evangelists. I guess I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, what what would be an example of this? Of an evangelist? Yeah, just some random guy going around to wherever, or girl, because it's Global Methodist Church. So... It's hard to say what they have in mind as they're talking. They don't define what an yeah, evangelist that was, is. That was my. That's, maybe I missed it, but no, it doesn't even have a definition of what. Well, and the other problem here is the TLC is a very busy group. They're not appointing a commission under the authority of the TLC or a director like in the previous thing. It's no, just saying they report directly to the TLC. Well, yeah, board. Wait, it says they have a board? The Transitional Leadership Council shall appoint a provisional endorsing board. Oh, okay, I yeah. missed it. Okay, thank you for correcting me. Okay, so that's that's reasonable then. But yeah, so there are a lot of people that I've heard talk about in the conversation about what are, what are we expecting of bishops. There are a lot of people who want bishops to just be traveling evangelists, in which case that would just be, you know, read on down, it'll tell us about it. bishops. This is imagining a different office altogether, of people that seem to be associated with a region or a bishop, but who travel around. And I mean, the only thing to be confident of is they're supposed to tell good news. That's the meaning of euangelion. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to see, understand, like, was, so does the annual conference pay for this, or does he just get donations from the random churches he goes to, or what? No idea. It's, yeah, because it doesn't say. say. It. Yeah, it doesn't no, say. It's just weird. What I imagine is that they will come up with their own unique financial arrangements for each one. I just wish they either like define it or just don't put it in there. 
Like if you haven't got it fleshed out, don't put it in there. I don't know, man. It's vision vision casting. <sighs> yeah. All right. Whatever. Uh, I'll read the next one too. Paragraph four fifteen. Transfer of creder- clergy credentials. Clergy applying to transfer to the GMC from another Christian denomination, except for those specified in paragraph four nineteen. Which I think is senior transitional provisions. Did they stipulate a? Oh my gosh, that's a big system. All right, we'll see. We'll see what it says when it when it comes back to it. Uh, all right, we were right there. They must provide the following: one, a formal resume with references; two, proof of ordination; three, official transcripts of all post-high school education, and four, a copy of all personnel files maintained by his or her former denomination to be sent to the Board of Ministry at the written request of the clergy person. The applicant must also, one, submit to a background and credit check and psychological examination, two, interview with the presiding elder, three, pass denominational exams on doctrine, history, polity, and Bible for their level of ordination, and four, interview with the annual conference, board of ministry, or equivalent. Upon the completion of these requirements, transfers must be approved by a two-thirds vote of the annual conference, board of ministry, a two-thirds vote of the clergy session of the annual conference to which the applicant is seeking admittance, and by the receiving bishop. We've talked about a number of the things in there, the two-thirds voting thing, the psychological evaluation, the role of board of ministry, anything else to, to note. No, so that's just if you're transferring from another denomination, not necessarily the UMC, you got to have all of these things yeah. in order to do so, which makes sense. That's, I get the sense when they're talking about in uh, the second point three, past denominational exams on doctrine, history, polity, and Bible, I'm starting to get the impression that they're going to have like a formal written exam that they expect all candidates to pass. It's not going to be some kind of informal interview by a board of ministry, but does that give you the impression that they're going to have like... Yeah, I feel like they've kind of hinted at it, but it hasn't been very clear before, but that one kind of does seem like it's, okay, we're going to have some kind of test, because... I, I think I would like to propose, if anybody on the TLC watches this, I think I would like to propose, if you guys do come up with like a written exam that newbies are expected to pass, would you consider just sending them to all the global Methodist clergy? I would just be very interested in like the scoring of every single clergy. I want to know how I would do. I want to know how my peers would do. I'm just very interested in that. I think it would be cool. Yeah. yeah. It would be interesting to see what's on it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want to do 4th 16? Um, yes. Do we want to get into 16? What are we yeah. At? Yeah, we're doing fine. 57? We got we got 10 more minutes. Okay. Pushing that line. 16. We're going <laughs> to an hour. Quit. Go on. All right. It's, uh, appointment of clergy from other denominations. Upon recommendation of the Board of Ministry and affirmation by the clergy session of the annual conference, a bishop may appoint clergy in good standing in other Christian denominations to serve appointments or ecumenical ministries while retaining their denominational affiliation. Oh, okay. So this is appointing. I was thinking it was, for some reason, I was still on the transferring thing. So this is somebody in another denomination, wants to serve in some capacity at a global Methodist church, they're allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah. We'll be ecumenical in nature, yeah. Okay. All right. Their appointment shall be as a valid deacon or a valid elder. 
I sure hope they feel validated when they swing <laughs> in this role. <laughs> Clergy persons retaining their affiliation with other denominations while receiving appointments in the Global Methodist Church shall meet the following criteria. A, complete an application prepared by the Board of Ordained Ministry, including the following. One, testimony of their Christian faith and call to ministry. Two, permission and release of any required psychological tests or a criminal and a criminal background. Um, oh, it goes on to the next one. A criminal background and credit check report and a report of sexual misconduct, misconduct or child abuse. Um, three, either a notarized statement certifying that the candidate has not been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor or accused in writing of sexual misconduct or child abuse or a notarized statement detailing any convictions for felony or misdemeanor or written accusation of sexual misconduct or child abuse. There are way too many ors in that. You were tripping. Yeah. You were tripping it's throwing up. throwing me off. The main takeaway, though, is if you have messed with kids, don't even try coming in. Yeah. Great. I feel like that would have been picked up on our background check, maybe. So, but yeah, it's saying if if they did pick it up on a background check, the only way in which that's not going to immediately disqualify you is if you have these notarized statements and documentation showing that it was baseless. Oh, okay. Because it does, false accusations do happen. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, That was end of point three in A. So B, a statement agreeing to teach, support, and maintain the Global Methodist Church doctrine. C, give evidence through an interview while with the Board of Ministry that they have read the Transitional Book of Doctrine and Discipline and will support and maintain Global Methodist Church discipline and polity. D, present suitable credentials as an ordained clergy from another Christian denomination. E, present evidence of completion of educational equivalent to that required for deacons in the Global Methodist Church. Clergy persons holding ordination from another denomination or congregation but not meeting the requirement required educational standards for the Global Methodist Church may be appointed provisionally with full educational requirements for deacon to be completed within three years of the start of the appointment. Progress towards completion of educational requirements shall be shown annually. So they only get three years instead of seven years to do it. Okay. Um, two, clergy affirmed as valid deacons or valid elders may be accorded the right to vote in the annual conference on all matters except the following. A, constitutional amendments. B, election of delegates to general, regional, regional or annual conferences, and C, all matters of ordination or, or of ordination character and conference relations of ministers. Okay, I'm not. It's just saying they don't get voice or vote on who we let in because okay. they're just lucky to be here. That makes sense. Yeah. Valid deacons and elders may serve on any board, commission, or committee of the annual conference except the board of ministry and the board of trustees. Valid deacons and valid elders may not be elected as delegates to general, regional, or annual conferences. And finally, three, between conference sessions, the board of ministry may approve such persons for appointments pending their approval at the next regular clergy session of the annual conference. 
the bishop may make an interim appointments of such persons once approved by the Board of Ministry. In every case, prior examinations of ongoing reviews shall be made of such persons' understanding, acceptance, and willingness to support and maintain the doctrine, discipline, and polity of the Global Methodist Church. So key takeaways that I'm bringing away today is the Global Methodist Church is simultaneously very amenable to many ministry settings and many ministry functions. However, it has standards that it's hopefully going to be strict in maintaining. So there's going to be a quality control measure, and then there's going to be a versatility uh, to it that they're going to hold. I mean, we'll see how it goes, but I'm, I I think it's good to be optimistic. What do you, you think? about that? I have no, no real opinion on that one. Yeah. I, like, think, I guess I would just have to see it more like, okay, this is this is how we're going to do this rather than this is how it's going to happen. Like, I, I guess I would have to know, like, what are you why saying? it would happen. <laughs> that, that, this is how we're going to do this, but not how it's going to happen. Okay, that's so, like, too, I that's guess the same ex- thing. Give me examples of how this is going to work. Like, because I'm not, I'm not following it. Like, yeah. What, what, in, in what point would this be a thing that we'd want to do? I kind of, okay, so what I imagine happening is a lot of people coming to the GMC saying, I have a dream for how I want to operate, but it doesn't really fit in a traditional understanding and reading through this section and going, man, I I think I could be an evangelist. What? There's no job description. I can make it my own. Or, you know, I, I could be really happy as a deacon, or I could be really happy as a chaplain. You know, which one am I drawn to? And here's, and all of them are relatively unstructured, including the the... Well, we don't need to get into that, but I, I think what they're doing is we got to hold everybody accountable. We we got to have standards, but we also want there to be versatile leadership where people work collaboratively on, alongside one another in different spheres. So uh, I don't think that they, I don't suspect that they have a real clear vision of here's what the evangelists do and here's what all the deacons, I, I think what they understand is we got this world full of sinners and all these weird institutions, and we need to um, be able to tailor ourselves to operate differently in different contexts. And so here's how we do that. Here's the versatility, and here's the structure. Okay, my eyes just glaze over. Okay, well, whatever. I did yeah. my part. I did my best. Um, this, this, you know, the, this might bore me and you, but there are a lot of people that are going to listen to this and go, man, I've never wanted to be an elder, but I can totally imagine serving hopefully, in this Hopefully, yes, hopefully this is, uh, people are getting something out of this. That's that's all I got to say on that. Okay. <laughs> well, we, we made good progress today. We're going to pick up next week with leaves of absence, and that's a, a lengthy section, then senior status, then transitional provisions. Where do we get to bishops? How far away is that? that? Next Part five, the yeah. superintendency. We might... Oh, I think we can make it there next week. Oh, so, yeah. Now, if we can get through those three paragraphs, then we're there. Great. Okay. Well, bishop is something a lot of people care about. We're not going to give this short shrift, though, so we're going we're gonna to talk through. And then uh, whenever these transitional commissions that uh, Ms. Nicholas was telling me about, whenever they start putting forward amendments, then we can kind of plug those in and... Um, <laughs> we can kind of plug those in and uh, see see where how they fit and what they can do. So anyway, thanks for spending time with us. If uh, if you enjoyed it, feel free to share it. Uh, we always really appreciate the comments of people who understand this stuff better, helping us understand it. So feel free to comment and uh, like, and, and we'll see you next week.